and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a fascinating week in geopolitics, as always with the United States and my president, Donald Trump. It's never boring. But last week, there were these comments that came out of the White House, or allegedly came out of the White House, because there is some dispute now, describing in rather vulgar terms, uh, African countries. No need for me to actually say the word, because A, I don't want to get kicked off of iTunes, but B, most of you have probably already heard the word. So that actually isn't the interesting part of this conversation. The reaction in Africa has been swift. Uh, the fact that so many people are offended by those comments. And remember, this is not just the only thing that he's done to insult Africans. Nambia was one, uh, describing Nigerians coming to the United States. And once they see America, they're not going to want to go back to their, quote unquote, their huts. So this has been really a string of comments from the president that has not gone over well in Africa. Now, the reason why we're going to be talking about it today is in part trying to measure the impact that this may be having on the security situation in Africa, particularly in, in context of the Chinese. So it's a long stretch to go from vulgarity to a security situation. It's one of the reasons why, Kobus, you and I have been struggling to draw a straight line between the actions of the president and security. But there's an article in the New York Times that came out on January 15th. Trump comments infuriating Africans may set back U.S. interests. Now, remember what U.S. interests are in Africa today. They are heavily invested in the war against terrorism, particularly in places like Nigeria and Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda in the Sahel, uh, also against Al-Shabaab in East Africa as well. And there are serious financial interests. So, while the president may not have an appreciation for the level of American commitment in Africa, certainly Africans recognize this. So, Cobus, help me better understand what your take is on this. Your president, Sir Ramaphosa, uh, I'm sorry, uh, your new ANC party leader, Ramaphosa, he said that he was uh, very upset by this. He's called in the American ambassador. Botswana has also called in the American ambassador. Um, when you heard the comments and you see the reaction, Set the table for us in terms of how this may play with the Chinese. There's a few things to keep in mind here. In the first place, the you know the comments drew a lot of attention from Africa, but at the same time, you know they they came in the context of of very stark kind of budget. Um, how can I say, like kind of changes in the U.S. budget, um, or then the proposed budget, because that budget still still needs to be to be clarified and confirmed, um, which would, on the one hand, somewhat increase uh, U.S. military um, military spending, um, and then um, the Secretary of Defense James Mattis in October said that um, that the U.S. military is, is planning to refocus a lot of its attention on Africa. So that's that's happening. Um, on the other hand, it also slashes a lot of state, uh, uh, like 30% of the State Department budget. So what you have is while some kind of military engagement in Africa is U.S. military engagement is increasing, you, you see a simultaneously de simultaneous decreasing 
of U.S. diplomatic engagement. So, um, so you see a kind of a narrowing of U.S. focus. You know, with some of the kind of public diplomacy and other kind of development outreach that they did under the Obama administration being narrowed down, while military engagement is being boosted. Um, so, of course, this is happening in the context of the Chinese building a base in Africa. Chinese being very involved in multilateral peacekeeping in Africa, and multilateralism is the issue um, here because um, the Trump administration is also planning to slash budgets for multilateral peacekeeping. So this is this, some some of their some of their contributions to the UN. Um, you know, is is apparently being lessened, and at the same time, the UN uh, ambassador Nikki Haley in October visited Africa and she was talking up bilateral peacekeeping um, instead. So you, you, you see it moving, possibly moving from, uh, from you know, kind of a, a wide-ranging kind of UN-esque framework, um, which opens the, the you know, the, the possibility for a lot of, for wide-ranging uh, participation, including a lot of different countries, to these kind of bilateral relationships where the, the power balance is, is, is much steeper. Um, so, you know, so, so it, it puts a lot of what China's doing in Africa, it, it puts into a kind of a new context. So the comments and the reaction to the comments came uh, as, well, actually right now, Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, is currently on a four-nation tour, and he is actually responding to them as well. And, and maybe not directly, but he is presenting China as a stable partner. He's reaffirming the Chinese government's commitment to Africa, both in a security context as well as in a broader diplomatic engagement. And that brings us again to this question of security and a stable partner. And there's an interesting new book that's coming out, Seeking Security, China's Expanding Involvement in Security Cooperation in Africa. It's by Chris Alden, who's an old friend of our programs. And uh, also he co-authored it, and it's been co-edited as well by Abian Alao and Zhang Chun from the Institute of International Studies here in Shanghai. And so we're very pleased, Chris, to have you back on the show to talk about your upcoming book and, and really all the moving chess pieces on the board of geopolitics right now. Thank you. Uh, before we get into your book and the question of Chinese security, I'd like to get your take on this issue of the Trump comments. And, and again, not specifically in relation to the, the vulgarity, but really more in relation to the changing U.S. relationship with Africa and how that may or may not benefit China. Um, I think that it, the, the, the attitude that's expressed by Trump in those words has a policy meaning. The cut, as, as Corbis just mentioned, the cutting of the budget uh, in the State Department, the, the fact that there's no uh, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs appointed as yet, the fact that ambassadorial appointments haven't been made across the diplomatic uh, uh, range of, of U.S. embassies in, in Africa, all of these speak to the, the diminishing attention, and uh, uh, while Africa was never central to U.S. Uh, foreign policy, nonetheless, it had a position and a place. I mean, George W. Bush organized the PEPFAR program, which is underwritten AIDS uh, support, HIV support, rather, for a number of countries, a very important uh, element, a development element. That's going to be wound down. So all of these things have... Uh, are expressions of a retreat. You know, that attitude really has policy meaning as a retreat from engagement on the continent, and, in, and, to, and only selectively so, as you said a moment ago, about bilateral peacekeeping operations as a possible uh, U.S. response. 
Chris, um, can you give us a, um, an outline of roughly where China stands at the moment in relation to African security? What are, what are some of its biggest, its biggest engagements, um, you know, and what, what, is the, what are some of the biggest security roles that it's currently playing in Africa? Well, it, it's grown its role. It's something that, it, while not new, it's been a gradualist development. It didn't have a position of, of substance really until 1990 uh, in the peacekeeping uh, uh, component. And we've seen China slowly but surely ratchet, ratchet up its, uh, uh, its involvement in terms of contributions financially, contributions of peacekeepers, and in more recent and contributions in in terms of mediation, so those are strong features of of uh, Chinese um, engagement in African security through multilateral channels. Uh, the, on a on a bilateral uh, at a bilateral level, you've mentioned the base there, there, uh, in um, Djibouti, which will serve as a platform both for. Uh, uh, naval operations, but uh, as we understand, at least as reported in, in uh, Hong Kong newspapers, there will be up, up to 10,000 Marines, um, Chinese Marines uh, assigned to it as well. So there's, there's that dimension, which um, is uh, uh, growing as well. And then finally, there are bilateral, a set of bilateral military relationships, the kind of thing that countries have with um, military attaches, perhaps training programs, uh, the selling of arms and those sorts of things. So we, we've, it's a pretty, pretty broad sweep of involvement on the African continent, but something that's been gradualist in its uh, arrival. A lot of people are actually quite surprised to hear that uh, just how the breadth of Chinese military engagement is in Africa. Uh, the troop numbers somewhere around 3,300 at the last count that, uh, that I had uh, could be higher now. Combat troops in South Sudan as part of multinational peacekeeping operations there. Troops deployed in Mali. Of course, off the coast of Somalia, there is the PLA Navy. Uh, who's been doing anti-piracy operations for the past 10 years, uh, UN deployments in the DRC uh, and, and other places. So it's really spread. And as you said, it's a gradualist approach. And you talked about how in your book and, and how the, the military response in Africa from the Chinese is in response to, to three threats that they face. There is a, and, and I'd like you to talk about those three threats, uh, business interests, their citizens living there, and also the, re the reputational risks that they face. If you could walk us through uh, those three threats, that would be interesting. It, it, these these uh, flow from um, the, the economic exposure. As China, uh, and it's a logical follow-up of uh, the going out policy, the, the, the increasing engagement in all aspects of economic activity across the, the African continent, but first and foremost in, in the energy and resource sector. Um, what happened, and one would expect this, as more Chinese businesses were opening up, more state-owned enterprises were, were situating themselves in, in African locations, and, uh, and again, it's a, resources require a physical presence in ways that other kinds of businesses might not. So you, you, can, you are immediately engaged with and exposed to the, to the various political, infrastructural, uh, social problems that are, might surround you, or your particular operation, in ways that wouldn't be the case in a different kind of uh, industry or sector. So 
that that economic exposure, uh, that exposure rather, uh, produced the sort of tensions in some cases which uh, affected the ability of firms to operate. Um, it it ex uh, drew uh, in some criminal elements within the host governments, um, uh, within the host societies rather, targeting Chinese citizens. So Chinese citizens as individuals, firms themselves found, uh, found they, they might be targeted, taken hostage, even killed. Firms themselves were exposed to the vagaries of, of political control, changes in government, uh, pressures from from the host government to extract more value from from their operations there. So those sorts of concerns, um, the behavior of those firms as well, uh, spilled over into the the China brand, if you like, in Africa, or the reputational element. So if uh, some of the the famous cases in Zambia, uh, if you have Chinese firms that are, that uh, are um, uh, unfortunately involved in uh, strike action where where uh, local local um, trade unions activists are are shot at or killed. This produces a, a, a very negative image of China as an oper as a as a economic actor within the the, the particular country. Reputational risks meant uh, were, were beyond that though. If you look at the um, uh, in, in two thousand five two thousand six. China was exposed in Sudan um, to to the criticism, increasingly exposed to criticism for its association with the gov government of Khartoum uh, around Darfur and the Darfur uh, crisis and what have you. So uh, on the international stage, its reputation was tarnished, increasingly tarnished by its um, involvement in the continent. It needed to take positions. It needed to negotiate. It needed to find ways to secure better deals for its firms and, and in fact haul up Chinese firms that weren't behaving well and causing reputational problems, state-owned and otherwise. And it needed to find a way to, uh, it, when crises happen, the most dramatic of them of course is, is the, the Arab Spring and the Libya uh, evacuation, it needed to find better ways to protect its citizens. Um, Chris, can you give us an idea of how effective Chinese peacekeeping has been um, in Africa? Well, you know, I'm, I'm assuming this, there's a whole bunch of different ways of measuring that. But to which extent are they, can they be seen as having had a real kind of, you know, kind of peace building, peacekeeping uh, effect on the ground? I mean, Chinese peacekeeping is, is fitted, of course, within a multilateral peacekeeping, a UN-led peacekeeping itself and uh, they they generally uh, have two or three functions one is to mediate and maintain and observe a ceasefire um, then the, the second is more activist that is to say facilitating the peace building side um, not just separation of, of hostile forces but going in there and, uh, and beginning training, police training, beginning to uh, restore institutions and stability and what have you. So China has fitted itself within that program um, and uh, by most accounts uh, done, uh, done uh, quite well at this. Uh, sorry, an additional thing and the bulk of the peacekeepers have been involved in the infrastructure side that is an engineering and medicine medical treatment as well it is only since 2013 as eric mentioned that we um 
that we see combat-ready troops being involved in this. Recently in Sudan, of course, in South Sudan, there's been some controversy as to the responsiveness of Chinese peacekeepers to to uh, to a particular incident, um, and there's been there have been several accounts. NGOs have criticized. Um, Chinese peacekeepers is not responding to um, threats of violence to the civilian populations by, by militias and other groups. Um, the Chinese have said, in fact, the problem was the, the head of the, the mission, um, who was subs- a Kenyan who was subsequently um, dismissed and replaced by a Chinese um, uh, military, uh, uh, UN military commander. So there is, there is a little bit of, of kerfuffle around that and disputing disputed accounts. Having said that, since the Chinese um, <clears throat> UN commanders had uh, completed his tour of duty there, during, during that period there was no notable outcry or problem as there had been in, in the previous um, commander's uh, role. So there's a decent record there. Chris, there's one part of this that, I, that I'm struggling to get my head around, and, and you've touched on it a little bit here. So let me kind of put a couple data points on the map and see if you can string them together because I haven't been able to. A few years ago, I think it was back in 2015, uh, the Chinese government changed its anti-terrorism law that allows for uh, the Chinese military or special operations to in, engage in – to deploy troops to foreign countries. Uh, without their consent in order to preserve Chinese people and property. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two is the deployment, the increased deployment of combat troops. Uh, and then you've talked a lot about the the risks that are associated with it. And there's a political risk here in China as well. And it comes from the fact that Xi Jinping is the strongest president in modern Chinese history, uh, really since the Deng era from Deng Xiaoping, about 30 years. And it doesn't look good for him if his people are being taken captive in places like Mali or being killed in Syria by ISIS. And let's not forget, of course, that China has its own Muslim challenges uh, out in Xinjiang, as well as uh, challenges with ISIS as well. And so in the era of Wolf Warrior II, where the Chinese is projecting this very, very strong interventionist uh, message... Uh, it seems to put the non-interference doctrine that has really defined Chinese foreign policy for a half century in question. So how do we reconcile those different points with adherence to the non-interference doctrine, which says we will not interfere in another country's internal affairs, when in fact the, the pressure seems to be pushing Chinese military intervention, either for security or even on a multinational basis. But still, nonetheless, Chinese forces are being deployed in other countries. And I just wonder, how does that square circle? Yeah, I mean, the non-interference policy will, will uh, I, I think, remain something that uh, uh, features in the rhetoric of, of China's involvement. They increasingly redefine what it means to interfere so intervention is possible. By the mid to late 2000s, intervention was possible if, support, if by invitation and supported by multilateral, uh, uh, through multilateral means. So there, you know, that refinement from, from a sort of um, universal claim to non-interference to one where interventions of a certain kind are 
are um, supported has been part of that gradualist engagement that that I mentioned earlier, the ratcheting up of of more troops and and uh, expanding legal basis, which you mentioned for Chinese action. Um, the the other thing I would say is that I I, I think that non-interference has been increasingly replaced in the in the sense of great uh, in the sense that Xi Jinping government talks much more about great power diplomacy, great power diplomacy with Chinese characteristics. Um, so I think that this idea that he's trying to transmigrate away from this, this the constraints that interference, um, non-interference policy places on the re, uh, on action to solve the problems you've mentioned, the the the, the dangers felt by citizens, um, the need to be more activists globally, to te to step up to the plate as as the United States and and perhaps some of the European countries, others um, uh, become less involved. Uh, China has certainly uh, she's um, made it a point since 2015 stand uh, going to the, the United Nations to indicate that China would be supporting financially and in terms of, of troop uh, deployments, 8,000 uh, standby troops, peacekeeping troops to be made available, um, for, uh, was part of what he told told the gathered assembly, and also uh, one billion US dollars over a 10 year period to support peace building operations Peace, what he called peace, what was in translation, peace building, but peacekeeping operations of any, of any kind. So these are, I think, part of that. Um, it's also, as I, as you said, it's a domestic. There's a strong domestic driver to this. That's that, it, that uh, when people get on uh, uh, WeChat and complain about uh, uh, the fact that no one's looking after Chinese citizens, um, that they're uh, they're out there alone in in foreign locations, and uh, in fact even under threat. China needs the Chinese government needs uh, to respond to that. That that's that's a point of concern for them domestically. It's not just a foreign policy problem. To bring the conversation back to the U.S. and China in Africa, um, I was surprised when I was I was reading about you know about the 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 development of of the. Uh, U.S. military engagement with with Africa under Trump, um, and was surprised to read that some of the of very senior people in Africa, which is the, the obviously the U.S.'s main uh, command in Africa, were quite open, or they expressed themselves to be quite open uh, to collaboration with China in in Africa. Um, do you foresee collaboration between the U.S. and China on, on on shared kind of peacekeeping under Trump, or is that is that not on the cards? Yeah, I've seen I've, I've seen similar sorts of statements. Um, I've also uh, we've had a debate, at least led by we see a debate led by the U.S. Congress as to whether this is a, in the interests of the United States and what have you. So you've got a, I think more of a debate between them. I think the people on the ground see this as a strong people on the ground in Africa, U.S. commanders and and the like see this as a as a positive and constructive. Um, component of of solving the security problems in their region in the region they're they're located um i think there are political problems that spill overs from uh from uh, the general uh tightening of of relations um 
between the United States and and China in the East China Sea, South China Sea, and all of that. So I think I think that that dynamic is is having an impact on what would otherwise be a much more collaborative, you know, a clear call for collaboration um, on all on all parties' parts. You're being very diplomatic. I, I will be less diplomatic. There is no way on God's green earth that the United States military and China and the PLA will ever collaborate, particularly in Africa. I mean, it's just not the optics of that, particularly in the Trump era, are impossible to imagine. <laughs> I mean, it, it just, it, you know, you, they're not even selling Huawei phones in America because they're afraid of the Chinese military, much less actually having collaboration on the ground. I'm, I'm highly skeptical of that. And I don't think there's a lot of appetite here in China for that either. Uh, particularly the idea that there's this feeling that the U.S. military is containing China and the South China Sea and other places and taking the side of Japan in disputes and, and causing problems on the Korean Peninsula. It just doesn't see – I mean, that I, I read that article, Kobus, a long time ago, and it seems highly improbable that we'll ever see that day. Um, but uh, let, me, let me close our discussion here on, on a mixed note. So on the one hand, you talk about all the positive things that China is doing in Africa uh, in security, and it does seem like it's positive. The fact that the United States wants to cut its engagement with the UN in Africa, and here's China stepping up, deploying more humanitarian troops, peacekeeping, post-conflict resolution, all of that is great stuff. But there's a darker side to all of this, and you talk about it in your book uh, about arms transfers, particularly small arms transfers, uh, which is you know, particularly insidious in, in a place anywhere around the world. Uh, but they're harder to trace. They're highly deadly. And Chinese weapon sales as well, drones, aircraft, ships, uh, it's building to a little bit of an arms race in some, in some parts of Africa as well. And so talk to us a little bit about the darker side and, and, and the small arms transfers and what that does to the security environment. Yeah, small arms are, I mean, the, we're not seeing ma major conventional uh, uh, military operations in Africa. It is led by the by small arms, more or less. It's and, and so Chinese arms did not initially feature a decade and a half ago, but gradually uh, they, they are increasingly, um, they've increased their exposure. They're the third largest trader in, in, in arms. They are going, again, in a, a kind of, uh, as a, um, they're becoming more, involved in light arms, artillery, all sorts of things like that. So small arms in particular, um, they, they know no boundaries. Uh, uh, it is um, surprising to me that the Chinese don't see the problem because those same arms uh, have reputational risks of their own kind to their peacekeeping uh, image. They have reputational risks in terms of of the, the, the attitude of citizens when these arms that are sold by one hand of China end up being used against Chinese interests. Um, and there is evidence of that already. So I do think this dark side is uh, not only problematic for what it does in Africa, but it's also problematic in the, if one looks at it closely, for uh, the, the very things that China hopes to uh, achieve in Africa, which is to show stability, show that friendship, etc. The book is Seeking Security, China's Expanding Involvement in Security Cooperation in Africa. Uh, Chris, when's the book coming out? When can we expect to, to see it on bookshelves? It, it's out. On, uh, it's it's out. out? Yes, it's out. Um, it's, uh, I think it's e-books form, but um, I have a physical copy 
uh, within sight. So I got a I got a PDF. So I always assume when I get a PDF, it's an advanced copy. So it's out. It's fantastic. I hope it's not one of these academic books that cost eight thousand dollars to buy one copy of it. Can yeah, we have I won't say anything about that, actually. Oh, that that's what's so criminal about this. You guys do some great work, and yet normal people can't buy it because it's not available on a Kindle, and it costs a gazillion dollars. Um, so The academic publishing industry is uh, one of the most corrupt it, fields in it the world. Was, so Chris Alden is an international relations professor at the London School of Economics and Political Sciences, and he's uh, published. He's really one of the, the most well-known China-Africa scholars out there, and he's also a research associate with, uh, with Cobus there at the South African Institute for International Affairs, and uh, also in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria. Uh, he co-authored and co-edited the book with Laura Barber, Abiana Lo, and Zhang Chun of the Institute of International Studies right here in Shanghai. Chris, thank you so much for joining us again. Best of luck with the book, and really, it's, uh, it's a fascinating read. Thank you so much. Kobus, I love this discussion because it really reaffirms that we are in a new world. I remember back in 2012 when I was uh, in Paris, and for the first time, a Chinese battle group was in the Mediterranean. And that really just struck me as like, wow, this is a new era that we're in. And in hearing Chris walk through all of the complexities and the thought that's been put into on the part of the Chinese and how they're evolving strategy for security in Africa, it's a different world that we're in. And I think the problem that you're going to face in Africa is that too often people look at foreign military intervention or a presence on the continent in strictly colonial and imperial terms because that's the way it's been for centuries. And I just think that the Chinese are playing by a different set of rules. And, and there really is no precedent for what they're doing in places like Africa that we can reference. So I'm not saying it's necessarily benevolent. I'm not saying that the intentions are always good. What I am saying is that the way the Chinese are going about this is very, very different than what we've seen during the Cold War with the Soviets and the Americans, and certainly during the imperial and the colonial era. They're also stepping into a new defense and, and peacekeeping environment. You know, so one of, one of the things that, that um, an expert that I spoke to about the Trump, the Trump Africa defense issues pointed out to me was that despite the fact that, that the, the Trump administration is, is putting a lot more attention to Africa, that doesn't necessarily translate to having more American boots on the ground in Africa. It'll probably um, translate into a lot more drone, you know, based attacks and a lot more surveillance. Um, and so, it, you, you know, kind of you see the Chinese military is stepping into this environment where a lot of the engagement that's happening in Africa already is, is this kind of long distance uh, uh, you know, uh, controlled from some kind of facility in Idaho or somewhere, uh, kind of you know surveillance and counterterrorism operations. So it is very interesting to 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 compare and to think about how how they're going to be reacting in that kind of security environment in a place like Africa. So the base in Djibouti was the first overseas military base for the Chinese. Uh, Chris Alden pointed out that it may ramp up to 10,000 Marines that are eventually based there one day. Uh, we're getting word now of a second military base that will be based overseas, and it's in Pakistan. Again, these are this came through the Pakistani media, so they have a sketchy record for being accurate, but that does actually make sense. And 
what the theme is between Djibouti and Pakistan is that these are points on the Belt and Road trading route. And I'm going to imagine that if the Chinese are going to invest upwards of a trillion dollars, and even if they don't hit a trillion, let's call it $750 billion, or whatever it is, it's a huge amount of money, they're going to want to secure that trade route. Uh, particularly along vulnerability, vulnerable parts of it in the Indian Ocean, certainly through the Suez Canal, through the Middle East. Those are highly f- vulnerable areas to attack, uh, to being taken captive, to terrorism and whatnot. And, uh, and so we should expect to see a lot more Chinese overseas military engagement. And many of the things that are going on in Africa today seem to be the precursor for what's happening in other parts of the world. So I think it's really important to understand the trends that are happening here in Africa and then to look at them, how they apply to the rest of the world. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another show. In between, if you'd like to stay in touch with the latest China Africa news, we've got this fantastic newsletter we hope that you can sign up for. Uh, Every Monday, Kobus and I put out the top five or six stories of the week. And uh, it's just a great way to stay in touch with all the, the different news without kind of getting too much. Of course, if you want to follow Kobus and I, on social media. We'll have all the address and information coming up for that. But I I invite you also to join me on LinkedIn. Uh, Look me up, Eric Olander. Uh, Half a million people now are on on this page having a discussion every day. And what's great about LinkedIn is that the discussions are so much more intelligent than what we hear on other social media platforms, partially because people have their professional profiles attached to it. So if you're going to start flaming and trolling people, it doesn't really look good for your job prospects when you're on LinkedIn doing that. But if you really want an, an intelligent discussion, uh, I really in- urge you to check out what we're doing over on LinkedIn, and it's fantastic. And so, we, Kobus, we got to get your LinkedIn page up a little bit. My LinkedIn page is up, actually. Oh. It just needs to be, yeah, it just needs to be kind of developed and, and worked. So we got to share some love, everybody, with Kobus uh, to get his page up to, <laughs> to a half a million as well. So for Kobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.